Hi everybody, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of traffic and posts and discussions on From Poverty to Power for the week beginning 3rd of December. Monday we had the uh, customary links I liked roundup. Um, a couple of things I'd pull out this time. Some really interesting research from the University of East Anglia and Radiate, who do those fantastic spoof aid adverts, showing charity fundraising ads to 74 people in six countries who are on the receiving end of aid and asking them what they thought. And really quite interesting to see how, I mean, no surprises, they massively preferred positive images to negative images, and the negative images made them feel quite sad. Um, and of course, that awful decision for fundraisers of show positive images, you raise less money, but you in the long term do less damage to images of uh, Africa and elsewhere. So interesting piece of work. And then the second one was just a funny, um, some one of these endless round robins, this one from people doing an audio book app um, saying, we really want to interview uh, Adam Smith. Um, would he be available for a 15-minute phone call? We think it would be very helpful. So um, if anybody wants to dig up Adam Smith and get him to uh, spin his books, I'm sure it would be a really big break for him. Um, Tuesday, uh, very exciting. We've got a job and a whole new lease of life, I think, for the blog, which is that we've got some funding from the Ford Foundation and the Hewlett Foundation in the US, basically for me to write and talk less, which I think a lot of people could get behind. Um, and instead of me, we're going to try and find a lot more content in particular from developing countries, from writers in developing countries, really good quality writing, but also do a lot more on the sort of podcast and, vi and video front. So to do that, um, we're going to uh, find, we need to find a really smart half-time person who's both passionate about development and the issues, but also has all the sort of tech editing skills that we need. Um, if you are that person, please apply. The deadline is the 16th of December, so it's quite quick. It's a, but we're hoping, we're already getting a lot of interest. I think it could be a great, uh, a great piece of work. On Wednesday, I reposted um, a really nice piece from Kate Rayworth, who used to be at Oxfam uh, in, in the research team and has now become a global superstar with her idea about donut economics. Um, and she's, and the, the, it's really interesting how that as a body of thought is evolving, becoming more sophisticated. And she summarized some work from other researchers who picked up the idea, uh, which she's done at a global level, and developed national indicators. And I've done a sort of Hans Rosling style blobby diagram of where countries, each individual country is at, um, both on achieving a sort of minimum social floor and on staying within the planetary boundaries. And so you've got a sort of scatter plot of all these blobs, national blobs. And Kate's conclusion is that all of us actually now live in developing economies because no one is in the magic space of both providing the basics for their population and staying within the economic, uh, the environmental limits of the planet. So there is a big empty quadrant there waiting to be populated by countries who, uh, who, who become first movers on that stuff. So really interesting watching that evolve. On Thursday, I reported back on a two-day conference I've sat through um, earlier in the week on localization, which is the idea that um, we should be putting much more of the aid sector's money through directly through local grassroots organizations, NGOs, other organizations, and not always thinking that it's the white man in shorts, the white savior complex, 
um, you know, actually moving away from that that kind of traditional model of aid. And it's there's been a lot of talk and very little action. So as of 2017, 2.7%, so $1 in 40 of humanitarian aid went through went directly to local organizations in that way, which is a, a scandal. So we spent two days discussing why that is and what to do about it. And, you know, I think why that is, is a really interesting and important combination of ideas and institutions. So, you know, there is a sense that there, there are lots of ideas abroad in the aid sector, which we need to challenge. Not sure they're all wrong, but there is a real fear of diversion that if, especially with this conference was about really messy conflict areas, civil wars, places like Syria. So is, is it, the case that local organizations are more likely to divert money than other ways of channeling aid. I think that's, uh, that's not a given either way. I think it's something we can research. Um, uh, then there's the institutional requirements, which is in some of the big conflicts, the amounts of money are huge. So if local organizations are going to receive money, they have to receive big chunks of it. In that case, they end, the risk is they end up becoming giant bureaucracies, a bit like you know, international aid agencies, and they lose contact with the, 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 the grassroots work that they, they really want to be doing. So there's all sorts of questions on ideas and institutions. But there was also a really interesting conversation on what, what are the sort of exciting, potentially sort of game, game-changing things that people are doing. So there's a kind of, there's a thing which they call micro-grants. This was, a, this was a new, you know, I don't spend much time with the humanitarians, so much of the language was new. But micro-grants are the, you know, two $10,000 bits of money you give to local organizations and it's quick, flexible, not too many strings attached. It's much easier to give an organization $2,000 and say, go and do something with it than to give them $20 million when suddenly you're saying, and we need to have all these reports and these audited accounts and blah, blah, blah. And the debate on microgrants is a bit like it was on individual cash transfers 10 years ago. So there's concerns about it being misused. We need to do the research and see whether that, those concerns are warranted or not. National pooled funds. So you get all the donors to put the money into a fund, and that fund is both designed and managed by local organisations. That could be an interesting one. And then there are some sort of meta questions like, the humanitarian sector still operates basically on a deficit model. You know, it's, they call it a needs assessment. So when there's a, a conflict or a, a disaster of some kind, you go in and you assess needs. What, are, what is it that people need that they don't currently have? Which on the surface looks really sensible, but actually completely ignores what their strengths are, what they actually have. What are they doing quite well? What could they build on? So you, you, you come in with an idea in terms of your structures, which actually reinforce the idea that people in these situations are just helpless, passive victims. And if we actually did strengths assessments rather than needs assessments, we would come up with a completely different model of how we work in these areas. So there were some interesting sort of meta questions. And also I was really struck that, you know, I spent a lot of time having very similar conversations with completely different groups of people in things like the thinking and working politically network, which I've written about recently on the blog. And these two groups of people don't talk to each other very much. So I think if the humanitarian localization people just spent some time with the thinking and working politically people, they could learn a huge amount from each other and actually be stronger together than working separately. On the margins of that conference, which was Chatham House Rules, so I can't say who was there or, or, or what they said individually, but, but on the margins, I met a really interesting guy from northern Kenya called Evans Onyego. And Evans is 
um, a sort of walking example of localization, I suppose. He, uh, he runs uh, a local office of Caritas, the International Catholic Organization, but it's very sort of decentralized. And it, he is working in northern Kenya, where it's a really chaotic situation where you have lots of pastoral groups, different communities, different ethnic groups, who've always had a tradition of fighting and stealing each other's cows and goats and camels. Um, but that all got turbocharged when everybody started getting automatic weapons and it's become very dysfunctional and very difficult. And lots of, you know, uh, one point uh, when uh, Evan's organization started getting involved in peace building and reconciliation, 30 people a month were dying in these uh, cattle raids and, and disputes and vendettas in his little part of northern Kenya. So Evans, I did a podcast with him, but he's also got a really nice little 11-minute video about what they actually do about this to build to build um, trust and to try and calm down the, the tensions and the conflicts of in, in this part of uh, northern Kenya. Um, and he's got some great advice to the aid sector as a whole about what this localization agenda means and how to make, make it work. So that's the, uh, the last post of the week is a combination podcast and video. Uh, and even if you're not interested in Kenya, I urge you to have a listen because it's a much broader of much broader relevance than that. Okay, that's enough from me. I'm currently in um, Geneva trying to help um, UNCTAD, a bit of the UN system, sharpen up its profile, zap up its narrative, starting to uh, start to get funky. Helping the UN get, getting funky is um, not an easy, option, uh, easy task, but I'll report back on it next week. Okay, have a good weekend, everybody.